0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Our way, the Western way, has always been a work in progress. Questions of life and death, Good and evil, justice and tragedy, these are never definitively settled but must be addressed again and again as personal and public worlds shift and change. We hold our morals to be absolutes, but the context of our actions and decisions is forever changing. We are not relativists because we seek to reevaluate again and again our most crucial moral positions. So, why do we romanticize the man wolf who seemingly punishes wrongdoing without hesitation? in ways that we ourselves cannot countenance.
0: Anne Rice is the author of 31 books, including the novels Interview with a Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, Angel Time, Of Love and Evil, and her autobiographical work Called Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Confession. Her new novel is The Wolf's Gift. Thank you for joining me, Anne.
1: Delighted to be with you.
0: And you know, one thing I noticed as I looked up across your whole history of writing, is you have a love of deep history in your novels. Your, I do, yeah. Your novels are embedded in, in practically the world as it, since the time it began.
1: Well, I, I think that was my first love, was reading about the world since it began. You know, archaeology, anthropology, history, ancient history. Uh, I was immersed in those things when I was a little child,
0: and as a child, you came from a, a storytelling environment, didn't you? I, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about how your the stories you told in your childhood have carried forth to this very day.
1: I, I really did grow up among storytellers. I think it's very much part of the Irish Catholic American tradition. And people in the South, especially, are are natural storytellers. And uh, conversation, exchanging stories, that's a vital, part of life down in New Orleans. So you had the Irish Catholic influence and the Southern influence coming together in my family. And I grew up listening to my mother tell dazzling stories, all kinds of things, old ghost stories, legends, stories of things that had happened in that mysterious house over there and that mysterious house down the block. And of course I grew up with radio too. I, I remember the world of radio before televisions were in houses, when when radio was everything and and we all uh, you know, lay together on a bed at night and listen to the Lux Radio Theater or the Inner Sanctum or, or, or all day with the soap operas. I was a little kid roaming around the house listening to Young Widow Brown and Ma Perkins and Backstage Wife and, you know, it was just stories, stories, stories and characters just roaming through your world all day long.
0: Now, uh, one of the things that interests me uh, about this book and about, you know, your oven general is that you do a great job of using the tropes of the supernatural and um, creations of the fantastic to externalize and get out in the open in terms of plot and character, issues that internal issues that we really can't otherwise talk about. Mm-hmm. And I, that started with the uh, interview with the vampire, didn't it?
1: it It really did. it It really did. You know, interview with the vampire was sort of an accident. I mean, it started it was a whim. What would happen if you could get the cartoon character of the vampire, the man in the black cape who looks like a head waiter, you know, that guy, to talk to you and tell you what it was really like to be immortal and what it was really like to drink blood. And I remember the night I wrote the short story, I remember sitting there thinking, it must be incredibly intimate to drink the blood of another. You must tap into the heart, the soul of the other person. And I had no idea of knowing that when I experimented with that story, I was going to open a door that was going to provide a way for me to talk about my reality. I mean, what was important to me, everything that really mattered to me. And, you know, years later, I can see how clearly this happened. It was, I needed to be writing about the supernatural. I needed to be writing fantasy to get to my reality. I wasn't getting anywhere with realism in fiction.
0: Well, that's one of the things I think that makes a uh fantasy such a powerful and often underrated uh, mm-hmm. genre because it speaks to us directly on an emotional level using the plot and the characters mm-hmm. to to uh, talk about these things that we can't talk about, about being alone, mm-hmm. what it feels like to be alone.
1: You know, it's it's strange that it's turned out that way in literature. It's, it's a bit of a mystery. I I remember when, when Interview with the Vampire was published, I wanted so much for people to know this is serious fiction. Yes, it's about the vampire, but it's serious fiction. And one of the first signings I did was at a sci-fi bookstore.
0: And w- as, which one?
1: Uh, it, was, it was in the East Bay, and I don't remember the name of it. Um,
0: dark carnival?
1: No, it was before Dark Carnival. It was a little before that. And but it was it was down there in South Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And I went over there to sign and the really geeky great science fiction fans started coming in and they were the ones who wanted to talk about the deep meaning of Interview with the Vampire. They were the ones who said, "Well, is Louis an existential hero or do you agree that he's a Nietzschean Superman?" And I thought, "This is they, they get this. This is great, you know. I mean, I'm being patted on the head and considered a freak in the straight bookstores, but here <laughs> here they really want to talk about the characters. And I never forgot that. that. That made a lasting impression on me that the fantasy fans were the ones who cared about the philosophy or the theology uh, or the historical overview in a book.
0: Well, uh, I think that's one of the things that... That you do so well is that you marry this kind of this deep history, this ancient, your ancient cultures, your interest in the history, mm-hmm. and your ability to write lush, supernatural,
1: mm-hmm. um, kind of
0: pastoral settings with a really modern setting. You're very interested in technology, aren't you?
1: I am. I am. And, and also, I wanted very much to have uh, Reuben in The Wolf Gift in, in today's world. I mean, I, I feel right now probably more connected with the world than ever in my life. I'm not sure why. Maybe because I enjoy social media so much. Maybe because I'm close friends with my son, who's only about 30, a little over 30. I don't know. I feel very connected. And so Reuben naturally came out to be very collect- connected technologically and very much living in, in the world we live in. I didn't bring politics or world events into the novel. You know, that I didn't bring. It was focused on his feelings when he discovers that he's changing into uh, a man-wolf. But, um, but I did put him in a, in a very up-to-date world. Yeah.
0: Well, that's one of the things I think that uh, makes this novel really immersive because um, you give us these, this beautiful northern California setting, which is really nicely evoked, and it feels um, timeless. And that's the way the forests feel around here. You go to walk into any of those forests, and you think, you know, this could have been a million years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and you
0: then you see some of these old houses in these forests. You think, boy, this it could be a hundred years mm-hmm. ago.
1: Right. And
0: with this novel, you kind of capture that flow of time up to this present moment.
1: Right. Right I mean we that is the nature I think of northern California that that it's affluent, very high tech and yet there's mere woods there or or stretches of redwood forest that seem almost untouched and unexplored further up when you get into Mendocino county and beyond you know it's it's really quite a combination to me it was perfect for um for the man wolf to go lose himself in the redwoods is a haunted quality to the redwoods you know the, and and i never thought of them that way before but when I wanted to go back to to the more gothic elements that I enjoy so much in fiction, I thought, this is the perfect place for it. You know the the windswept Mendocino coast is 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 just like the romantic English coast of old black and white movies of big houses and hauntings and and Rebecca, you know, the tragedy, Daphne du Maurier's wonderful Rebecca, uh, where you might as well have a ghost, you know running the novel, Rebecca.
0: Now, one of the things I think that I love so much about this book is we meet a guy, and it, it, this is, speaks to the way you write. We meet a guy at the beginning who, to, to to be honest, if I read anybody else's book, I think I might not like him as much. He's rich, he's handsome, and he, he's rich and handsome, and, and he's talented. But you managed to make this character really likable and engaging, and mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk about that, mm-hmm. uh, how you do that. How did you conceive of this character?
1: Well, I, I think he came to life for me when I, you know, characters really do come to life for me on the page. I mm-hmm. discover them. I, I let the subconscious go as I write the character. And he came to life for me when I realized that he was very uncomfortable about those things, about being rich and good-looking, that he wanted to be taken seriously. He wanted to do something meaningful. And he, he had, had been dismissed a lot as a pretty boy with the money. And 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 he lets this woman know this in the first few pages of the novel, Marchant Nydeck, this woman he meets who owns this great big beautiful house on the coast, and he's able to talk with her about who he really is, He how he would love to live in a house like this and, and, and write novels. And she doesn't laugh at him. She doesn't sneer at him the way most people do or make any jokes about his looks, really. She just talks to him sincerely and sort of sees how uncomfortable he is being privileged and good-looking and um that's when he began to really develop and uh, but i have to ask you i i really do why do you think people take offense at the fact that he's rich and good looking because all my characters in all my supernatural fiction are rich and good looking. I mean, they don't get, nobody's offended that the Vampire Lestat owns millions all over the world in, in, in banks, huge banks like the Rothschild Bank and, you know, the, the Bank of London. But they got a little bit offended about Reuben being rich and good looking. Uh, you know, uh, well, I think for me, I really liked him from
0: the very first. And mm-hmm. I think that's a matter, that's something you handle at a prose level. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to do with your ability to engage us in this rich, atmospheric mm-hmm. uh, kind of place. I don't know why anybody else wouldn't like him. I I really dug, yeah. dug him from the very beginning. Yeah, I think you know to a degree. I think there's a certain um, amount of resentment against Cal- the, the California Nouveau Riche. Uh,
1: maybe maybe that's it because the,
0: techno- the Silicon Valley uh, yeah Sultans.
1: Yeah, maybe that's it because uh, as I said. I've, I've written in period and in in, in costume about people who were really rich before, and it never comes up. It's as though we can accept that. You know, if it's a 16th century vampire in a palazzo in, in uh, Venice, we can accept that, that he's got chests and chests of gold, you know. But when you're writing about somebody right now at this time, you have to be sort of careful about the way you describe their financial background. Or it could be a barrier with the reader. It's just something I learned here. I didn't foresee it, but I have learned it since the book came out.
0: Well, I thought it was very well handled. And one of the things, in fact, we like his whole family. Mm -hmm. And I think you do a great job of creating this family. When you started this book, did you just start with the first scene, or did you have an idea where you were going to go? Or
1: uh, Well, the fa- again, the family sprang to life. I, I had written a short synopsis mm-hmm. uh, for television, The Wolf Gift, a proposal for a TV show. But as soon as I began to do the novel, that's really when the characters began to come like the branches off a tree. You know, It's easy to write a TV treatment where you don't develop those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his mother sprang into life. I mean, one of my closest friends— uh, if not my closest friend, is in fact a trauma surgeon, a brilliant trauma surgeon. He drives a Porsche, and he's a very good-looking man. And I think he was inspiring me as I as I did this. I was thinking of him when I created Ruben's mother, Grace, this high-powered trauma surgeon who has a lot of money but still has to work every day of her life saving lives. It should go out of her mind. You know, and of course, his, Ruben's father's a college professor. Well, my husband was a college professor for many, many years. And I lived in that world and knew other professors. And, and that, was, that was kind of easy to do, Phil, the, the retired professor who's a poet, but is, is really sort of completely out of rhythm with his high-powered surgeon wife, you know.
0: Obviously, what launches this is a, is a wonderful set piece. Uh, and this novel has, features a lot of set pieces, and I'd like you to talk about crafting that in prose because you talked about this being pitched as a TV show, and we can see that. But actually, I, I can't imagine uh, watching even a movie version of this that would have any competition with our experience as readers reading this on the page.
1: Mm-hmm. You mean you're talking about those early scenes yeah. at Nideck Point? Well, you know, I hadn't seen any of that in the TV treatment at all. It was just a simple matter of saying he got bit somewhere and, you know, then had to <laughs> deal with it when he came home. Um, <clears throat> but that house sprang to life for me. And, you know, I grew up um, really loving houses, a, a, a sort of ragamuffin kid in New Orleans, drifting through neighborhoods of gorgeous, unreally beautiful houses. And the two novels that educated me at 14 into what novel writing could do were Great Expectations by Dickens and Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And there's where I really learned about fiction. And Each of those novels features an enormous and mysterious house. In Jane Eyre, it's Rochester's mansion where the madwoman lives in the attic. Jane goes as a young governess to this mysterious place, you know, and and all kinds of wonderful things happen. Laughter at night, a mad person creeping around, you know, the threat of murder, uh, all of that. And then, of course, in Great Expectations, it's Pip, the little little blacksmith's apprentice who goes to Miss Havisham's mysterious house, Seda's house, this huge crumbling mansion where Miss Havisham has been living in her wedding gown since she was jilted at the altar 20, 30 years before and takes him all around a dining table where there's a rotting wedding cake from 30 years before and the rats are just eating the cake on the table. So I grew up on this. You know, I grew up this way. And one of the things that happened to me as a writer was that I was able to own fabulous houses. And I owned a number of absolutely beautiful, wonderful 100-year to 150-year-old houses and uh, spent a lot of time refurbishing them and um, restoring them and maintaining them. But At this point in my life, I'm retired from all that. You know, that was a very, uh, it was a wonderful way to live, but it was very expensive. And now I live in a small rental family home. And here I was writing the novel, and suddenly Nideck Point begins to grow, and the house gets bigger and bigger. And I realize I'm I'm putting everything into Nideck Point that I loved about all the houses I've lived in, and the houses I've loved, and the houses I've visited, you know, but... um, I was putting the floorboards and and the rafters and and the treads and everything into that house that that had been in this beautiful, wonderful house I'd lived in in Oakland, California at one point, this double gable, half-timbered house. that was just just a a monument of great construction. And I was putting everything from the New Orleans houses into Nideck Point. And, And the house became a character in the novel.
0: Well, it struck me as I read the book and and you know wandered through the house in the book that the the book was in a sense a mirror of the house.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the house, the house, the metaphor for the mysteries and the possibilities that are discovered behind behind every door. You well, know.
0: there's a kind of architectural uh, way to the. The manner in which you write your fiction, the way the plot and the, and the themes kind of integrate too, that we'll see, you mm-hmm. know, uh, spiritual and uh, action scenes kind of jostle up against one another like different mm-hmm. rooms with different functions.
1: Well, you know, I've I've been obsessed uh, all my life by this question of when a materialistic experience or a, a sensual experience becomes spiritual you know like like it, i started to think about this when i read anna karenina and oblonsky in that in that novel um Anna's brother, is eating these oysters. And he's making such a to-do of eating these delicious oysters in the restaurant. And Levin, the hero of the novel, is the country guy with the pure soul. He's just sitting there marveling at what feasting means to this man. And I thought, what, what he's turning it into a spiritual experience, eating these oysters. So I've, I've been pondering that ever since I read that. And Nideck Point really... Um, epitomizes that for me in the novel. When, when does a beautiful house like that become a spiritual experience for everybody that enters it? When does everything in that house um, prove to be so meaningful, so coherent, so beautiful that it, it's a spiritual event to have been there?
0: Well, and of course, even the the means by which uh, Reuben is transformed into uh, the, the man-wolf mm-hmm. is also that's purely uh, about that. And I think that's one of the things mm-hmm. that's done very well in this novel is to integrate those kind of the uh, scenes of physical action with the spiritual themes of the book and mm-hmm. have them actually have the action be an expression of spiritual notions, of emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a tough thing to pull off.
1: You know, I... I it, I trust a great deal to instinct when I'm doing it. Um, and I hope that it will work out that way. And, and I, I I don't know how... I, I think the art of writing over the years is to learn what to monitor and what not to monitor and what to worry about and what not to worry about. And um, a lot of it for me there was, was following, just following the very simple thing, what would I do if this was happening to me? If I got bitten like this in the dark, that I was taken out of this mystery, and, 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 and my body began to change, and I began to go through this, you know, and, and everything I had to say about it sort of pours out. If I just keep focusing on that, what would I do?
0: Well, yeah. you, you have your own really great take on this whole mythology. And I'd like you to just talk about developing this because it seems very – um what's nice is that it's revealed layer by layer, day by day, as his uh, feelings and perceptions become more intense. Mm-hmm. But it's ultimately very organized. And uh, you bring it to this kind of point where I remind, um some of the passages in this remind me of an old Arthur C. Clarke uh "Quote: mm-hmm. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic."
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah, that's a great quote. Um, well, you know that—that's really true. I mean, that—that that certainly is true. Um,
0: Did you know what the final? As you were writing this at writing out the scenes where he's, his senses are becoming more heightened and his experiences are becoming more intense, did you know where it was going to lead? Did you have the final form in mind? No,
1: no, I didn't. I, well, I did know this, that he was not going to become a four-footed animal mm-hmm. and he was not going to be lost within the the body of a four-footed animal. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I had watched enough werewolf movies and asked myself what I liked and didn't like about them. And it was clear that what appealed to me was the uh, the the man wolf, the mm-hmm. man wolf, the, the man who walks upright and yet is a wolf man. And of course, it's right there in the first movie with Lon Cheney Jr. He's running around actually in his trousers and shirt, you know, as as wolf man. <laughs> and so now Reuben doesn't do that. He doesn't need his clothes, but <laughs> but he's still walking upright and he's able to speak. And that meant a great, and he knows what's happening to him. He experiences the transformation and describes it for us and remembers it and and comes back into his room after running around San Francisco as a man-wolf. He comes back into his room and, and of course, immediately photographs himself with his iPhone which is just what I would have done <laughs> myself you know
0: I, I love that aspect of this book that the, the kind of the high-tech um, the the you know the tweets and the and the, the iPhones and the, the sending the videos and all this stuff I think that that really mm. um, grounds the, the elements of the fantastic mm. and makes it seem re- very real
1: yeah well again it's the logic of, mm. of what would he really do if you want to make this real for the reader. It's it's got to have this probable factor. I mean, it's got to be what he would do. If you try to write this in a world of candlelight and shadows, you know, somebody's going to say, heavens, didn't he even have an iPhone? Didn't he <laughs> think to take a picture of himself? You know, And they're going to be asking a valid question. Is he, is he living in the 21st century or is he not, you know? So, yeah, he took pictures on the iPhone.
0: Well, I too, I, I have to say that this is something you've done with the interview with the vampire. I think all of your fiction is to take... Um, uh, supernatural tropes, the vampire, the werewolf, you know, uh, mm-hmm. mummy, and, and, and to, um, instead of rendering them as uh, mindless uh, killing machines, like sharks, essentially mm-hmm. the, the equivalent of the shark in Jaws, mm-hmm. you turn them into human characters and use that supernatural mm-hmm. element to externalize, you know, what you're interested in. And, and I think this book, it's, it's kind of the process of ecstasy.
1: Yeah, I I mean it, it the only thing that really interests me with the supernatural entity is is the personality, the potential for tragedy the potential for redemption, you know. What what is it like if, if I suddenly begin to develop into this man wolf creature or female wolf creature? I mean, what is that like to get big and strong and covered with hair and become invulnerable and have claws that enable me to climb a wall and you know, and, and powerful muscles in my legs. I kept thinking about that. Imagine I look at my cat, you know, and she can jump from here to the kitchen counter. I mean it's what was it like to, what is it like for Reuben to be able to leap like that the top of a building, you know, what does that feel like? And what, is, what does that make you feel like you can do? And what do you think when you're back in your room about what you've done? You know, I, I, That's where it's at for me with all these supernatural characters. And you know, I'm, I'm obviously not alone. This is something that happened in the latter part of the 20th century that we began to want the backstory of comic book characters and sci-fi characters. We wanted that depth. I remember when I saw the first uh, Superman movie with Christopher Reed the, the first one that was made by Dick Donner mm-hmm. the big ons and I thought what genius this was to bring this to the screen and and it really was it was sort mm-hmm. of a revolutionary thing I think it was one of the first of that kind ever made
0: well I think in in that regard this book is revolutionary because it has lots of aspects you're clearly thinking about our interest in superheroes mm-hmm. in this and what and asking a question of, what happens if a superhero commits violence Yeah, that's actually reprehensible even though it's eliminating evil? And that's a really interesting yeah. theological question.
1: Well, it, yeah, it is. And and I and I know that all of us, or at least a lot of us, when we watch the news and we watch stories of horrible kidnappings and, and, and awful crimes and victimization, we do want to just get out of our chair and go tear the perp apart. You know, just rip him apart. And that's what Ruby does. He he takes these kidnappers, these really bad guys who are are killing the kids, basically, and he tears them apart. And then he has to come back and deal with this. Well, okay, they were indisputably evil. I can smell the evil. I can smell the the adrenaline, the glands, the the aggressiveness, all of that. And, And I don't have any regrets. I mean, I didn't get the wrong person. But still, do I have a right to do that? You know, what if those three people would have repented down the line and become Franciscan monks? You know, I did I have a right to interrupt their spiritual destiny by executing them? So yeah, to me it's a huge moral question. We I think we face it in our imagination every day over and over again.
0: And I, and it's such a, a great plot driver for the novel because I got to tell you when you're when I'm reading this book and we first hear about that kidnapping, the first thing that we as readers think is, he's gonna get him. I know he's gonna get him. <laughs> yeah, right. And this is something that, that uh, one of the real pleasures of this book all the way through is because we as readers know immediately that he's gonna be a werewolf, that he's gonna get these powers. Mm-hmm. And it's so much fun as a reader to watch this happen. And it really drives us forward. And you mm-hmm. do a good job of uh, you do a great job actually of balancing the tension of not holding it back so far that mm-hmm. we feel cheated, but to mm-hmm. just keep us the pages turning at an incredible pace
1: well, i I'm, I'm I'm hoping you're right <laughs>
0: thank you <laughs> well when you when you do that um how how much of this is just instinctual on your part? how much of this is you um is the writerly equivalent of you turning into a werewolf on the as you tap on the keyboard, mm-hmm. and how much of this is you going back in revision and saying, Well, I gotta tweeze this here and move that there.
1: Well it's both, actually. It's both. With working on a computer, it's, it's, it's both. I mean, word, proce- word processing makes that possible. I, I, I write only in one draft. You know, I'm always going forward in that draft and seeking to clear my schedule so that I can just write all day and into the evening, day after day as that novel rolls. And when I'm finished, there's just one draft. There's no rough draft. There's no second, third, fourth draft. But I go back all the time and tweak and tune. You know, as I get deeper into my story and know what I'm doing, I'll go back and uh, refine. I'll start off in the morning with a cup of coffee, going back and, you know, going over a couple of things I did the day before, the day before that, because during the night I realized, well, I, gotta, I have to change that little thing, or that's not quite right, or, oh, wait a minute, I have to go back and hint that this is going to happen, or, you know, something like that. Or I forgot to have a really good dinner scene at the house. You know, <laughs> but, but seldom is it major revision. It's just moving forward and tweaking and, and, and bringing everything forward at the same time.
0: Now, one of the, I think the pleasures of all your books are the pleasures of the secret worlds that are within our world, and I and I really like these notions of secret worlds and secret histories. I think they have a kind of appeal to all of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I I I. Maybe living life itself is a matter of finding out all those secrets. I don't know. You know, I, I, I never stopped being that kid standing on the corner in St. Charles Avenue when I was about 10 or 11 years old, trying to figure everything out. You know, trying to just figure what the world was about. So uh, I don't know. Um, and, and right now, you know, I'm still trying to figure it all out. What happens after death? what what happens what what can we know what what how do we live knowing that we can't know how what is the best way to live knowing that we will never know until we die
0: well you know um the the spiritual nature uh, of of this book is is wonderful too because it you know this is a book that allows us to get right out into the open in fact uh, ruben as a newspaper reporter is actually uh, Addressing in his articles the nature of good and evil, and right. pondering the nature of good and evil, and right. this is an interesting tack to take.
1: Mm-hmm. It was it was uh, exciting, of course. It was the Clark Kent Superman uh, duality there, but it it was great fun to actually write the pieces that Reuben wrote for the paper, where you know no one knows he's the man Wolf, no one at all really, except his girlfriend Laura, but he he writes these pieces where he comments on what the, where, what the man-wolf is doing and, and the paradox of the man-wolf being a superhero when the man-wolf's actually ripping people apart and eating parts of their bodies.
0: Now, um, uh, the other thing that this book has that your books are noted for and you do very well is this has a great, nice romance in it. Mm. And it's kind of, it, what's interesting is that this is a beastly romance mm-hmm. and, and you kind of, you have to modulate your tone. We're going from a guy who's maybe just ripped people apart and eating them, to a guy who's a a sweet lover.
1: (laughs) Well, it's still Ruben. You know, he still needs love, and he still wants love. And I think no matter what we are, we want to be loved for ourselves, whether we're mafiosi or contract killers or spies or drug dealers. You know, we want to be loved for ourselves. We want to find somebody that will love us. And usually there is somebody around who will love you, no matter what you are. And he finds a woman who, who is attracted to him, knowing he's the man-wolf, and is still attracted to him when he's not the man-wolf, which is very significant to him.
0: Now, uh, we also have, in in terms of, of the plot, one of the things that's nice is that, well, you, you talk about a lot of literature in this book. And I, I love all the literature you bring up. Um it, Nathaniel Hawthorne is mm-hmm. one of my favorite writers. And, and I was thinking, you know, that the Nideck House is a little bit like House of Seven Gables. yeah. And the, some of the scenes in the woods remind me of young Goodman Brown, which is I think oh, my, yeah. well, a my story. favorite story.
1: I love that story. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm so glad that you said that. I did love I, that story. It's yeah. why
0: I remember reading that in college and thinking this is, this yeah. is the way a short story should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and one guy who in particular keeps coming back is Pierre Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and oh, I'd right. like you to talk about him because I think that he's in a way the moral compass for this novel.
1: Well, I I've just begun my own journey with Teilhard de Chardin. I don't understand a lot of what he writes. He's it's very hard, difficult for me to really read masses of abstract theology. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one reason I write novels is because I can't really write theology or philosophy. You know, I can't I can't deal in in discussions that are dense with abstractions. I I have to deal in concrete nouns and characters and dialogue. But Teilhard de Chardin, uh, more than any other theologian I've ever read, has given me hope, because he was a Catholic priest who truly loved the world. You know, evolution, archaeology, anthropology, these were things that he studied and loved, and he embraced our creation um, with a great deal of joy. And he, he... gave us a new theology that um, does is is not caught in any old Hellenistic duality between the concrete and the spiritual. I mean he basically saw creation itself, evolution itself. Uh, biology itself, the universe itself is spiritual and magnificent and beautiful. And and I think that's what we need more than anything today, is to embrace the creation in that way. You know, right now there's a lot of talk in the public square about... Um, the religious right wanting to teach creationism and saying evolution is just a theory and so forth, that's nuts. I mean, that's insane. I mean, the most wonderful thing about evolution is when you when you see the magnificence of what the creator has done. Or are you seeing the magnificence of what the universe is doing? It doesn't matter what you call it. You're you're, you're tapping into the incredible splendor of the created world in which we live, the physical world in which we live. And Teilhard de Chardin really perceived that and saw that as a way to know God and to be close to God. And that's why I had to put him in this book and have quotes from him in this book. Uh, I, 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 there's a quote in there, I believe, what he said about evil, that evil is inevitable in any system that is evolving in time. Right,
0: right. Yeah. And I, I like that uh, mm-hmm. that quote. And I think, um, you know, this this notion of you know the incompatibility of science and and religion was. I mean, Saint Augustine solved that.
1: <laughs> well, he did. He did solve it. He <laughs> yeah. said, if there's a contradiction, you have to go with science, yeah. basically.
0: Yeah, go with what's what's in front of your nose, because right. exactly. What was put then there for you, you to must find. be
1: misinterpreting <laughs> scripture. If 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 there's, I know. And we now have a movement in this country that strangely um, harkens back to the dark ages. It's, it's very peculiar. I
0: I, I find. Um, well, I think that's one of the, the joys of this particular novel is that you use you explore those themes mm-hmm. in a very plot-rich, character-driven novel that's mm-hmm. exciting and fun to read. And I think that that kind of uh, reading experience uh, does a lot more than a lot of yelling.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I, I, I truly hope so. I mean, um, I... I I have felt all my life that I wanted to write novels that were a lot of fun, that swept people up, that engulfed them, that brought them into a world where they really had a great time. And that in that world, I could say I could talk about everything that mattered to me. Good and evil, life and death, how we live a good life, what morality truly is, the importance of morality. All of that would be in there if if I got the suspense the sensuous writing, the characters, the thrills, the fun, the roller coaster ride.
0: Now, you uh, when you talk about the suspense, I, one of the that you cite, uh, you know, the the holy uh, trio of uh, Chandler, Hammett, and Kane. And, oh yeah. and There's and I think that that those guys inform your writing. You know, in terms of
1: they do <clears throat> uh,
0: the crime elements on this are very very interesting. I think
1: mm-hmm. it's
0: a different spin on a you know, a crime-solving superhero.
1: Well, I, I do love those writers, and I do love crime fiction and true crime. I've read true crime books for years, and uh, I read some really great true crime books by Tommy Thompson called Blood and Money. It was one about a murder in Houston, and there was another one, Serpentine, about an international killer. And those books are as good as novels. I mean, because of what he chronicles about the real world of crime. And, and I do have that in my background. And that does inform my writing. You're right. I don't think most people notice that, though. You, I Thank you for noticing that. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, it was the Chouchilla killings, which are oh, yeah, I read which,
1: all about them, yeah, and it really
0: and that's a absolutely stellar plot point the way that's worked out in this mm-hmm. novel and I, as you are um one of the things too that we get in this novel that's really nice is uh, a lot of the man wolf legends and the um, kind of the cryptozoology aspect of it. I love that you brought up the Beast of Bray Road. I'm yeah, a big fan yeah. of that kind of stuff, and I think right. that's it's very interesting.
1: Well, again, Reuben would do that, right? I mean, wouldn't you do that if you'd been bitten and you were changing into this? You'd go to the computer <laughs> and you'd look. You'd come on the Beast of Bray Road. It'd be one of the things you'd, you'd turn up. It's a recent man-wolf sighting, you know, in the real world. So you'd come up with that.
0: Well, I, I think, too, that uh, these kind of... Uh, uh, true life uh, kind of fringe reports um, to help you as a writer um, make us take us as readers to slide from, you know, our world where we're, you know, going to McDonald's or sitting in a cubicle or standing Mm -hmm. there talking to people for all day Mm -hmm. into this kind of world that's lush and filled with these great houses Mm -hmm. and these speeding Porsches driven by, you know, Mm -hmm. shivering werewolves.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I've got to say, I absolutely love it.
0: Well, I think that, you know, by putting those kind of – you. I think as a writer you do a good job of deliberately dropping those things in to get us Mm -hmm. from where we are to where you want us to be yeah now um, when you're one of the things that we have in here is uh, Reuben proves to be, of course, not the only werewolf in in this in this uh, right. book, and you have a kind of a secret world of werewolves mm-hmm. that starts to open up towards the end. So I've got to ask, uh, when are, when will we have the the next book in this series? Is oh, there one?
1: Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, I really want to go on with it, and and there are many many ways to go, and many questions that are wide open, and and there's some basic questions whether some of the answers given were the truth. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they weren't, you know. <laughs> I, um, I like that. That's great. Yeah, you're right. a writer.
0: You're writing fiction. You can make it up.
1: Exactly. And somebody can come in and challenge the person and say, that's not the whole story of what happened or the, how we came into being, you know, we werewolves. <laughs> there are some other things that are involved, too. So I, I do want very much to write the sequel to it. I have another supernatural novel that I'd like to do first, but, it, but I definitely will do the sequel pretty soon after that.
0: Okay, well, tell us about your other supernatural novel. Can, can I you, uh,
1: I can't talk too much about it right now, just because it might not work. Oh, you okay. know, so H- I, uh, I want to make sure. I, I'm dying to get home and and get busy on it and get into it, and I hope it will work. But if it doesn't, I probably will go into the werewolf sequel.
0: You know? Now, one uh, you mentioned this as a as a. TV pitch. I can't imagine anybody who, who would turn that down at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. I, that, well, there's been a lot of interest. What, mm-hmm. what happened was I sent it to my agents, and, and they were quite optimistic about it. They said, mm-hmm. We really, really like this. And they were sending it out, and then I wrote the novel. You know I said I'm turning it into a novel and then I finished the novel very rapidly and got the novel to them and so then they started sending out the novel and there is interest there's a lot of healthy interest in the world of film I think more than in TV right now but well yeah I hope yeah. this this
0: could be a this I mean it it unfolds like a movie and I can, and to my mind no movie will match the the reading experience mm-hmm. because there's something just about reading that we get to do all the special effects ourselves, mm-hmm. and we get oh, to, yeah. and also, um, what you do so well in this book, again and again, is to give us the story from, uh, Ruben's point of view, right. and, and that's I think one of the, the key, things that makes it such an interesting experience is that you do a good job of immersing us in his in his perceptions and he does not understand what's happening to him. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of that, that makes uh, it easy for you to convey to us Mm -hmm. what's happening to him and immerse us in that kind of uh, perception.
1: Right. Yeah. I I really enjoyed doing it from his point of view. I never know going into a book, what point of view is going to work best to tell the story. For some reason I see the story before the point of view, but it worked when I got him going and him talking.
0: Now, uh, one of the things I think that's interesting, too, is when we talk about the theological nature of this book, uh, you're, you suggest that evil is something you can smell and that it's a, a right. hormone. And that's yeah. that's an interesting um Perception for somebody who had a spiritual conversion. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how one informs the other.
1: Well, you know that that was something that cropped up while I was writing it. But if if, if anything inspired that, it was the knowledge that dogs seem to be able often to perceive um, aggression on the part of others. And, if you know, I've had dogs in my life, dogs that I loved, you know, that that I was very close to. And to watch dogs respond to a threat, a subtle threat, to watch them respond to somebody who's no threat at all, you know, and to watch them even gentle down for somebody who's handicapped or disabled, is really an amazing thing. And you have to ask yourself, how is that animal perceiving that? What? what are they? They're not just seeing it. Their eyes aren't that good, you know, but they're picking up all kinds of physical cues. And for years we've said dogs smell fear. You know, that's, that's very well known. But dogs smell other things too, apparently. And so I was dealing with that, that Reuben would have this capacity to smell the aggression, the hostility, because all of this is going to be expressed in a glandular, hormonal way. So that's a biological thing that I'm presenting, you know, as as fact, but it's almost magic. But I mean it's but that's what I'm hinting at, that this is knowable, that someday we'll be able to to pick up uh the smell of evil, we'll all be able to do it for complex biological reasons. But right now he's able to do it because he's got this hyper sense, this animal sense combined with a man's sense. So uh it's you know the the great thing about werewolves is they're not really wolves and they're not really men or women. They're something in between. they're a new thing, they're a mutation they're a, they're a preternatural creature, so he's got this fabulous sense of being able to to do this beyond what a wolf or a dog would have and beyond what a person would have
0: and, and I think this is something that you do through throughout this book, and I think you've done throughout your career is to like really work that place where magic and the supernatural rub up against science i mean um you there the there are, are many things that we i this thing i'm reading my notes off of right now if i mm-hmm. showed up with this in the 16th century they'd right. burn me
1: oh they would yeah <laughs> burn they me would. A heartbeat. It's, it's demonic I mean, <laughs> you know <laughs> it's, it's it's tragic but all of this fascinates me so much you know uh um right now i'm i'm reading about mitochondria and i'm reading the works of nick lane who's a science writer a biochemist who writes books on 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 cell life and how how life came into being and i'm so inspired by this to to create novels i mean it's it's all i want to do with the scientific knowledge i mean and and i had a wonderful time with it uh, in this novel. I even had at one point where a character suggested what was happening to the cells, pluripotent cells, and how the hormones were affecting them. And of course, I got some of that information from my trauma surgeon doctor friend, you know, <laughs> some of the language I get from him. Mm-hmm. But uh, all of that, that feeds my my life um, as a novelist. I mean, I, my favorite section of the New York Times is the Science Times on Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever it comes out. I devour every article in it, you know.
0: Well, I think, too, I guess that's one of the things that makes your books, gives your books a very different feel from most other works that have such lush gothic language and lovely romances and really fully Mm -hmm. drawn characters is there's a a touch of uh, science fiction in your approach.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I got into that very much in the Mayfair Witches books that I did, that Lasher was Mm -hmm. made up of cells. They just weren't cells that we could see and study. The ghost was Lasher. The spirit and and I'm still working that out in these books. I mean, right now I've been doing research on uh, all kinds of cell life and 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 trying to figure out whether spirits and ghosts actually are cellular creatures that we can't see. They're not. They're not from the DNA line of which all of life, as we know it, comes. But there's something pre pre oxygen in the atmosphere. You know, it's something that dates way back millions of years that thrived on the planet uh, before. The planet became dependent on oxygen, but I have a wonderful time with this. I mean, I and to me, it's more enjoyable in the fiction if there are hints of this. You know how how we deal with magic in our writing. Well, it varies from author to author, and and of course from reader to reader. You 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 find one writer gripping because he gives you some of that, and mm-hmm. and you feel you can see, you can understand the supernatural elements better. And then others maybe I would reject because they're too too reliant on arbitrary. Um, Appeals to magic. I mean, it's one reason I never had my vampires uh, respond to crucifixes or garlic because I thought, well, what will that do to the universe they're living in if they have that kind of clear indication of some kind of magic underneath life? I, 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 It wasn't interesting to me. It was much more interesting to me to think that they drank blood and they were immortal, but they really didn't know anything more about God and the devil than we did.
0: Well, and I like that kind of... Uh the the way that you allow us as readers to intuit, mm-hmm. you give us enough to uh, intuit and to ask the questions and to supply some of the answers to ourselves. Yeah, I can go there. I mm-hmm. get that. But you don't give us so much as to say, okay, well now this is kind of a clunky explanation. And mm-hmm. you, you never have a doctor who stands up and says, well, Bobby. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or Von Helsing. Yeah, he uses no. long drawn out <laughs> explanations what Dracula's gonna do next, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I I'm trying to avoid that. Uh, there's so many devices that have developed over the years in supernatural fiction. And uh, I'm trying to avoid those devices, you know.
0: Well you're having a lot of fun and providing a lot of fun for readers as well. I hope so. I've been speaking with Anne Rice. Her new novel is The Wolf Gift. Thank you for joining me, Anne.
1: I was delighted. Thank you.